Lesson 12 for March 12 to 18, The Church Militant. Sabbath afternoon, March 12. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week. And as we're sitting listening or driving or walking, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us to guide us and to bless us because this lesson talks about us. And as we participate by opening your word, by opening our hearts, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us, each one, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Let's read that again, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. John was the last of the twelve apostles to die. As well as writing the gospel and the epistles that bear his name, he also wrote Revelation, which contributes much to our understanding of the great controversy. For now, though, we shall concentrate only on his description of the seven churches. We shall study them from the perspective of the original recipients, in order to enable us to glean as much from his words as possible. One thing that stands out is that Jesus personalizes his approach to each church. They all have different needs, and he meets them all. One challenge is that these churches are shown to be struggling with their identity, just as we are today. Are their members clearly lining up with Jesus and his calling to them toward witnessing to a dying world? Or are they straddling both sides, trying to look like Christians, but then privately being more comfortable with the powers of darkness? Though we see ourselves as the last of these churches, it will be clear that, however different the circumstances, in many ways we face some of the same challenges that the church has faced through the ages. Sunday, August 13, The Church at Ephesus In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is pictured holding the seven stars and walking among the lampstands as he addresses the church at Ephesus. These symbols point to significant realities. The lampstands are the churches, and the seven stars are angels tasked with caring for the churches. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. In other words, there is a close connection between the churches and the throne of God in heaven. The churches have a crucial part to play in the great controversy. Question Read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through to 7. In what ways can we see the great controversy played out in these texts? Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. 
To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labour, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have laboured for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The message to Ephesus begins with a description of its character. Jesus is fully aware of its strengths and weaknesses. He commends them for their activities, their patient perseverance, and their intolerance towards false teachers in their midst, as we read in verses 2, 3, and 6, a clear warning that false doctrine should not be tolerated in the church. It seems that the church at Ephesus, originally enlisted by God in the struggle against darkness, has suffered a counterattack by Satan. It came in the form of false apostles, followers of Nicholas, perhaps one of the original seven deacons, as listed in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, but who had evidently formed a breakaway movement. Whatever the heresy, Jesus hated it, as he says in verse 6. The trouble with the Ephesian church was that it had left its first love. This is very similar to the language of the Old Testament prophets, who likened the apostasy of Israel to a person chasing after illicit lovers, as in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 13, I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewellery and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. The situation may look hopeless. But Jesus specialises in redeeming hopeless situations. First of all, he encourages his people to remember from where they have fallen and get back to what they were doing in the first place in verse 5. This is not a call to turn the clock back to the good old days. Rather, it is a case of using past experience to guide them into the future. And so to finish today... Revelation 2.4 reads that you have left your first love. Why is that so easy to do? What happens to us either individually or as a church that could make our love for God grow cold? How do we keep a passion for God and His truth burning within us year after year? Monday, March 14, Smyrna and Pergamum. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus is introduced as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. That's Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. 
Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 reads, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. To the church at Pergamum, Jesus is the one with the sharp two-edged sword held in his teeth, as we read in Revelation 1.16. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And chapter 2 verse 12, and to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Question. What is the significance of the way Jesus is described for each of these two churches? Well, first of all, let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through to 17. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The church members at Smyrna are also known for their hard work, yet they don't have much to show for it. Maybe as a result of a synagogue of Satan in their midst, as it said in verse 9. Similarly, the members at Pergamum seem to be clinging to their faith, even though the throne of Satan is among them, as it said in verse 13. Thus the reality of the great controversy is seen here as well. The church at Smyrna is warned of tough times ahead, including prison and maybe even death, in verse 10. In Pergamos, someone already had been killed for his faith, in verse 13. It is important to note that the hard times have a time limit. That is, evil is not allowed to continue beyond a certain point, as it says in verse 10. Of concern is that God has a few things against the church in Pergamos, as it says in uh, verses 14 to 16. Apparently they are tolerating people in their midst who hold to the doctrine of Balaam and to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans.
Renko Stefanovic, in his book Revelations of Jesus Christ, commentary on the book of Revelation, page 111, writes, Nicholas and Balaam seem to be parallel terms. Nicholas is a compound Greek word, nikeo and laos, and means the one who conquers the people. Balaam can be derived from two Hebrew words, am, people, and Baal, from bela, to destroy or to swallow, meaning destruction of people. End of quote. Jesus warns the whole church that if their heresy continues, he will come in person and fight against them with the sword in his mouth, as we read in verse 16. Yet, even amid these warnings, Jesus gives both churches great encouragement in verses 11 and 17. So to finish today, read Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. What do these verses tell us about the idea that doctrine does not matter? Why does it matter, and in important ways, too? Tuesday, March 15, Thyatira and Sardis. Question. Read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through to chapter 3, verse 6. What are some of the issues going on in these churches? And in what ways are we as a church and as individuals struggling with the same things? How is the great controversy revealed in these struggles? Beginning at chapter 2, verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that women... Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels." as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know about what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The introduction of Jesus to the church at Thyatira in chapter 2 verse 18 reveals an increasingly trying and perplexing time for the people of God. The metaphors of fiery eyes and feet, of polished brass or bronze, not only appear in Revelation 1 verses 14 and 15, but are also found originally in Daniel 10, where Daniel meets one whose eyes are like, as it says in verse 6, torches of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. Later at the time of the end, Christ will appear and rescue his people. When the situation is darkest for God's people, God himself will directly step in to deliver those whose names are found written in the book of life, as it said in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Jesus is introduced similarly to the church in Sardis as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in chapter 3 verses 1 and chapter 5 and verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and on the four of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Here again as a saviour who is both actively involved behind the scenes and enlisting the powers of heaven to ensure the safety of his church. The description of these two churches is of deep concern. In Thyatira, although things are improving, as we read in verse 19 of chapter 2, they have been like Israel at the time of Queen Jezebel. Similarly, in Sardis, the people are spiritually dead, as chapter 3 verse 1 said. Despite all these issues, Jesus encourages the churches. He acknowledges many in Thyatira who have not known the depths of Satan and encourages them to hold fast till I come. There are also a few insiders who have not defiled their garments, it said in Revelation 3 verse 4. It is to these faithful ones that Jesus promises special blessing. He promises to give Thyatira the morning star in chapter 2 verse 28, which he later identifies as himself in Revelation chapter 22 verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And to Sardis he promises an assured place in heaven and that he will confess their names before my father and before his angels. Revelation 3 verse 5. So, to finish today, hold fast and repent. What do you have to hold fast to and what do you need to repent of? 
How are these two ideas powerfully related to each other? Wednesday, March 16, The Church at Philadelphia Question. Read Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. What are the ways that Jesus is introduced to this church? What do these descriptions tell us about him? Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. The church is commended for keeping Christ's word and for not denying his name, even though their strength appears to be quite weak, as it says in verse 8, I know your works, see, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Jesus takes an intriguing promise that members of the synagogue of Satan will soon come and pay homage to the Philadelphians in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. This is taken from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, describing the oppressors of God's people prostrating themselves in submission in direct contrast to all the harsh treatment that they had previously given to God's people. From this we may understand that the synagogue of Satan had been making life difficult for the early Christians. As we've seen, some of the previous churches struggled with those who were teaching error and causing problems. One of the ways that Satan works against the churches. Philadelphia, it seems, is the one who finally rids the church of this source of evil. Question. Read Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. How do you understand the perseverance of the Philadelphian church? How did Jesus promise to limit their trial? And what does that mean for us today? Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It seems apparent that the Philadelphian church has passed through times as equally tough as the previous churches, but their attitude seems to have been different. This is the first church that Jesus doesn't specifically point out a failing that they need to work on. Their faith and their cooperation with God has been noticed and appreciated by the Saviour, again despite their little strength, as it says in verse 8. The promises to the overcomer from this church include being made a pillar in God's temple so that they no longer need to float in and out. Revelation 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name.
With the new names they are given, they are fully identified as belonging to God, maybe because they had already been identifying with God in all aspects of their lives previously. And so to finish today, if you were suddenly in heaven right now, how well would you fit? Thursday, March 17, the church at Laodicea. Laodicea also gets some descriptions of Jesus. The Amen, the Faithful and True Witness, and the beginning of the creation of God in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. These descriptions are key aspects of the divinity of Christ. The Amen is a reference to Isaiah chapter 65 verse 16, where the word Amen is translated the God of truth and is linked to the covenant. Jesus is the great covenant-keeping God, the God who keeps his promises of salvation and restoration. Jesus is also the faithful witness who testifies to his people about what God is really like. Let's look at a few verses about this. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And Revelation 22 verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And John chapter 14 verses 8 to 10. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to Him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. He is also the Creator, as we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Question Read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through to 22. What is Jesus telling this church to do? What do these words mean for us today? Reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, 
have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. After these first texts tell who Jesus really is, it is necessary to clarify who this church really is. In other words, we can really only know ourselves if we know God first. The people of this church have been fooling themselves to the point that what they think about themselves is the opposite of what they really are, as it said in verse 17, because you say, I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus then pleads with them to take the necessary steps in order to have the clarity of vision needed to see things as they really are, and also to be changed as they need to be changed, as in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. The alternative is divine judgment, in two phases. First, it may be necessary for a little old-fashioned parental discipline, as in verse 19, as many as I love I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Next, there is the possibility of God spewing them from his mouth, like a mouthful of putrid water in verse 16. To this church that is so close to being cast out from the presence of God, the greatest promises are given. Jesus wants to linger over a meal with them, in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Something reserved only for close friends. Then he promises them the opportunity to sit with him on his throne, in verse 21. It is interesting to trace through the seven churches the developing phenomenon of God's people growing cold and moving away from him. How does this happen? It seems that although the battle has been won, some people are still persistently hanging on to evil and to the powers of darkness. There's no question that as we look through the history of these churches, we can see the great controversy being made manifest and being expressed there, and thus it will continue until the second coming of Jesus. Friday, March 18. Thursday study touched on the divinity of Christ. Why is that so important? 
Helen G. White wrote in God's Amazing Grace, page 42, Since the divine law is as sacred as God himself, only one equal with God could make atonement for its transgression. None but Christ could redeem fallen man from the curse of the law and bring him again into harmony with heaven. Christ would take upon himself the guilt and shame of sin, sin so offensive to a holy God that it must separate the Father and his Son. Christ would reach to the depths of misery to rescue the ruined race. End of quote. It's simple logic. The law is as sacred as God. So, only a being as sacred as God could make atonement for transgression of the law. Angels, though sinless, are not as sacred as their creator. For how could anything created be as sacred as he who created it? No wonder, then, that over and over Scripture teaches that Christ is God himself. The sacrifice of Christ, in a sense, centers around the sacredness of God's law. It was because of the law, or more precisely, because of the transgression of the law, that Jesus, if we were to be saved, would have to die for us. Indeed, the severity of sin can be seen best in the infinite sacrifice needed to atone for it. That severity itself speaks to the very sacredness of the law itself. If the law is so holy that only the sacrifice of God himself could answer its claims— then we have all the proof we need of just how exalted the law is. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, in class, discuss your answer to Wednesday's question, what are the implications of your answers? And two, uh, a quote from the Advent Review and Herald, June 10, 1852, by Ellen White. As I have a of late looked around to find the humble followers of the meek and lowly Jesus, my mind has been much exercised. Many who profess to be looking for the speedy coming of Christ are becoming conformed to this world and seek more earnestly the applause of those around them than the approbation of God. They are cold and formal like the nominal church that they but a short time since separated from. The words addressed to the Laodicean church describe their present condition perfectly. End of quote. Though these words were written more than 150 years ago, why do they apply so well to us even today? What does this tell us about the myth of the early times of the church somehow being the good old days? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled From Broken Promises to New Life, Part 2. And you'll remember that Francisco knew that many of the people at his mother's church knew of his past life. He was embarrassed to be seen. That Sabbath, the pastor spoke about the prodigal son. Following the sermon, Francisco responded to the call to give his life to God. He knew that the only way to gain victory over Satan was to let Jesus fight his battles for him. Francisco couldn't sleep and his body craved the drugs, but he refused to give in. 
When the craving threatened to overpower him, he locked himself in his mother's house and sang praises to God and read his Bible until the cravings passed. Francisco drew great strength from fellowship with his new Christian friends, and he attended every church service he could. His former drinking friends teased him when they saw him walking to church carrying a Bible. Francisco began walking several blocks out of the way to avoid them. Then he told God, For years I carried a liquor bottle without shame. Why am I ashamed to be seen carrying a Bible? After that he walked by his friends carrying his Bible. When they teased him he said, I realize my need for God. Some day you will realize it too. Francisco studied the Bible with a church member, and as its truths became more precious to him, he wanted to share his new love for God with Needy. He sent a message to tell her that he had become a Christian and asked if she would like to study the Bible too. Needy refused to believe him, but when she saw him later, she realized he had changed, so she agreed to study the Bible. Francisco still loved Needy and asked her to marry him. She agreed, and soon after their baptism they were married. Francisco worked hard, purchased a small piece of land, and built a little one-roomed house. He began searching for people in his neighborhood with whom he could study the Bible. Most of his neighbors had seen the change in Francisco's life and wanted to know more. Two months later, his first convert was baptized. The district pastor recognized Francisco's dedication and invited him to work full-time as a lay Bible worker. Since his first baptism several years ago, Francisco's zeal for Christ and his powerful testimony have led 1,000 people to Christ and helped establish six new Adventist churches. Sometimes he studies the Bible with up to 60 persons a day in small group settings. He once asked his friends to pray for the owner of a dance hall, and a week later, Francisco invited the owner to take Bible studies. The owner agreed, and eventually he was baptized. Now, the dance club is a church. The neighborhood in which Francisco and Needy live is filled with drugs and danger. But Francisco feels that God has called him to reach these people in a way that most cannot. And from the looks of it, he is. Francisco Helder Benicico is a lay Bible worker living in Fortaleza in Brazil. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.